Hey, welcome back to the 97th episode of the OpFact cast. And joining me today, we got a, a slimmed down crew. You know, living in a pandemic will do that to you. Uh, I got Jake Trapila here. We're the only crew that matters, baby. That's right. I mean, I, I brought the A squad, so fuck everybody else. And yeah. uh, Jack Easton. Hey, Steve. Always a pleasure to be here when no one else will show up. Yeah, that's that's what we got you here for, buddy. You got nothing better to do. I was worried about you, though. You got to be careful with your edible dosage, man. <laughs> uh, well, I thought I was being, but turns out that's more predictable than usual. But no, hey, it's like, all good. 100 milligrams. That's some fucking like Rolling Stones 1967 shit. You're, you're going too hard. <laughs> you see that it hasn't been the lot. The first time it was perfect. The next time I felt nothing. So I figured, well, we'll go for round three. And it just, yeah, that was... Matt, I would I would speak to your local baker. Been... This is oh, no. Well. This is. Let me give ah. you a metaphor from your motherland. When when someone goes, oh, where you been? And they go, oh, I was just out, had a couple of pints. How much is a couple of pints, Jack? Is that a real question? Because that could be ten to thirteen. Exactly. Exactly. So when someone <laughs> says, oh, here's an edible, it's a hundred milligrams. <laughs> Clearly, that's it's it's the same range. Who knows what you've been consuming? I, we, so, so would seem. I mean, I'm just going to have to pace myself a little better. That's the first time, though, that I've ever been knocked out like that. That was a really... <laughs> I, ordering pizza was so difficult, but very much worth it when it arrived. Dude, that, that could be the hardest part, man. Like, it one was... Time... <laughs> I was what so I... careful each time, and I was. I took me so long to order it. And then at the end of it all, after ordering it, I was like, wait a minute... Did I order for delivery or not? Oh, no. And then I just kind of decided to wait. I was like, this is probably just my mind playing tricks on me. It'll be okay. And I sat it out and it showed up. So, got it. That's Nailed good. it. I love a happy ending, man. Listen, I, oh, I feel you. Because one time I was in high school and I got really, really fucking baked. And I was trying to order Taco Bell at the Taco Bell drive-thru. <laughs> and I just kept laughing. At the guy that he would ask me questions. <laughs> you see, and then this, this, mm-hmm. well, he was like, he was like, he was like, um, are are you gonna be able to order? And I just said, I'm sorry, I can't do this anymore. And I just pulled off. And I drove away, and I never got my Taco Bell. That is so <laughs> sad. You see, I had I had a similar thing last night. I took my dog out for a walk. And I was standing out there with the dog, seeing if he'll do anything. And I was like, God, no one talk to me. I just, please. So I was having this issue with, you know, with time where, like, someone would say something to me. And then I'd be like, I need to respond to that. But has, like, have, like, has just a second or an hour elapsed since they said it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had the dog out and one guy passed and he asked me, you know, how old is the dog? And I was like, he's uh, 14. And I think I passed it off, like, beautifully he just went oh and he moved on and no further conversations had and i think <laughs> i think i played it off i think i passed i think it worked so that was really good yeah as i mean in which my actually, mind uh, 
I, I was yeah, going to no, say, I, I, think, I think that what he probably said was nothing to you, and you just walked by a guy and screamed 14 at him with zero context. <laughs> do, you, do you think I had not considered that possibility? That is in... Yeah, no, I was like, I, I hope he said something. That's a serious <laughs> issue. Um, I sat down, I watched um, whatever, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, which is, I think, a really Correct. good movie. Um. I think it's good. I don't know. I was enjoying it, but I will say the finale, there's like it ends in like a sex scene into a musical thing, and that was vaguely terrifying. I was not ready for that. So I need to rewatch that again, but for now, it seems like it's kind of a like a hip comedy that kind of segues mm-hmm. into just sort of a terrifying just series of still frames that have just consumed my brain. So maybe <laughs> we can do a podcast on that. Yeah, but you're not allowed to rewatch it. You just have to go from memory. <laughs> no, I, I don't know if I ever should. I feel like I feel like what I have in my head now is a singular horror experience. <laughs> That's and, one and a great mistake. <laughs> well, anyway, how was your lesson. Saturday? Oh, uh, you know, pretty pretty uneventful. Not as fun as yours, man. Uh, I'm just <laughs> continuing my streak of never putting on real pants. I've worn sweatpants <laughs> every day for the last two and a half months. I also haven't been wearing underwear, which is very freeing. I recommend it. And mm. started growing a mustache two days ago. So, yeah, I kind of look like I should be on like a police list or something. Well, I'm yeah. not. Command, it's not good. Commando sweatpants is uh, that's a statement. Yeah. So yeah. just imagine me with like. Like 1997 Liam Gallagher hair because I haven't been able to get a haircut. The most disgusting, like, like you know that that kid in middle school who could kind of grow a mustache in seventh grade. Like he's 13, he's but and he thinks he can grow facial hair, but he really can't. Like that's me as a fully grown adult trying to grow facial hair. So just the sweatpants, no underwear, a vile mustache, Liam Gallagher 97 hair. I'm ready, man. I, Frankly, if the cops saw like me, you'd taser me. Yeah, it, sounds like, it sounds like you should have been cast in a couple of the films we're about to talk about. Yeah, I, th- I think I, I, I do pretty well. I do pretty well. I got a real post-apocalyptic vibe going. And well, wouldn't you know, what a beautiful segue, Jack. Thank you for that. Uh, we figured, you know, in America, we do this thing where we can commit to something patriotically until it gets boring, and then we're done with it. And the latest thing that we've committed to is quarantine. But gee, wouldn't you know, it's been a few months, and a lot of people are getting upset because they're like, oh, I like making my boss so much money. I wish I could work instead of collecting unemployment. Jeez, I really want to go back to my shitty job. Can't wait for that. So we're going to be opening the country back up. And that raises a question, gentlemen. And that question is, what does our post-apocalyptic world look like? And thankfully, we were able to find, I think, four films that, that really are going to lay out what to expect in a couple of weeks when we can all start going back to bars and then we get a horrible disease and die. So the first one I want to talk about is my favorite it's, well, it's, it's a movie under my favorite subgenre of post-apocalyptic movies, which is the date when the apocalypse happened has already passed in real time. So <laughs> we watched Sergio Martino's 2019 After the Fall of New York, which for my money, I would say is one of the best Escape from New York ripoffs I've ever seen. Like it it kind of transcends that label even. Like it's more than just Escape from New York. So what did you, did you guys dig in this one or... Have have I burned I'll, your brain out I'll with say, Whoopi Goldberg? I feel, 
Well, I mean, the brain, it's burned, certainly. Between Whoopi Goldberg and what I got up to yesterday, my brain will probably never be the same again. But I, I do wish I do wish I liked this movie more. I enjoyed it, but at the same time, and it's certainly within the category of 80s apocalyptic movies, it stands head and shoulders above most of them. That's not a very high bar if you're familiar with that period mm. of Italian cinema and that genre. But um, it's I don't know it's a little slow, a little rough around the edges for me. But it's still kind of like I, I don't know. I like I feel like it's it, it hits this kind of unfortunate plateau where it's good enough that I'm really paying attention to it, but not quite got the funding to really push it over. Mm-hmm. Um, so well, you know, Jack, like, uh, uh, you're mm-hmm. a dumb hoe. Let me say that just straight oh, up. Okay, fair, fair. <laughs> <laughs> and you're completely wrong I mean, about this movie it's beautiful it's, it's, it's a better, masterpiece it's, look, look I always say it's better than like three years later Martino would make whatever Hands of Iron this mm-hmm. movie is a lot better than that movie which if you've not seen it is really funny because the poster has like a dude with big metallic hands Hands of Iron because he's a cyborg and the actual movie is just a guy they, didn't, they couldn't afford cyborg stuff so he's just a, he's just a sweaty man um, and that's the movie. And there's someone died making that movie just to really hammer home how <laughs> shitty it is. Like two people died in a helicopter crash. No one died oh. making this so far as I can tell. And yeah. I don't know, maybe that's what it needed. Maybe it just needed that extra just blood sacrifice. Well, um, but you know, I will say I, I, I enjoyed love, it. I, you know, that's that's good. That's good. I, I love Sergio Martino personally, but he's no John Landis. So, um, <laughs> that's yeah. true. <laughs> doesn't quite have the body count of a Landis or the sexual assault history of a Landis Jr. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's true. What a great uh, family. With, with this movie, I, I don't know. Like, at first, obviously, it, it, it was made as an Escape from New York ripoff. But it, it kind of does a lot more than that. It, the movie that it most closely resembled in my mind was... Well, this was it came much later, but I think it was like 2007, 2008. Um doomsday the neil marshall movie where it's just like hey you know that post-apocalyptic movie you liked in the 80s here's all of them at the exact same time just screaming at you (laughs) with non-stop action it's got that it's got that hell comes to frog town vibe too about you know fertility and stuff although they reverse it it's the women who can have the kids alternatively you could call this you could call this uh spaghetti children of men that's that was what I was gonna say is that Children of Men ripped off this movie. It's about the quest to find the one woman who is fertile enough to basically repopulate the world. Um, but I'm I'm on your side, Steve. I really enjoyed this uh, this crazy yeah. movie quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just just well, like from the, and there's the, not the, there's just not like just the, a fertile woman. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. There's not just a fertile no. woman. I want you to know that I can make babies. You know George Eastman can fuck. <laughs> That's right. I can make babies. He reminds us of that. I feel okay, like go ahead. Now incredible... that I play my sound drop. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, this is like, this movie has this crazy opening where it's just establishing shots of the charred remains of New York City. And then out from like the alleys comes this vagrant with a trumpet and he starts playing along to like the theme, the score for the film. And I was like, okay, this is great. Um, Mm -hmm. it's, and then it just goes on to, it evolves into, uh, gladiator car duels. Uh, it's a mil, there's a militarized police force where they're wearing like King Arthur, Knights of the Round Table, Arthur on horseback, but firing these weird futuristic space guns that make a, a strange ping sound every time they go off. 
They're very odd. They're like crossbows that shoot bullets because they're just regular guns. They're like, (laughs) They recycle that same sound effect like 150 times. Good enough for Star Wars, good enough for Sergio Martino. It's true, yeah. Yeah, And they're like basically flamethrowing homeless people for trying to survive. It's Yeah, you see, when you describe it, it sounds like, uh, I guess my issue, and I, and I did, I enjoyed the movie, I'm not, I w- wouldn't want to dissuade anyone who thinks it's fun to check it out, it's just to me, I don't know, it, it's, it fell into just kind of like this pitfall of being good enough to be kind of good, but not like weird enough, like I'm thinking of like Lucia Fulci did like a... Uh, uh, a post-apocalyptic, I can't remember what it's called, like gladi- New Gladiators or something. It's called 2020 The Texas Gladiators, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, yes, that one. And I remember that not being a great film either, but also being just a little weirder. And, you know, this what's missing from this movie to me, I think it's, it just doesn't quite have that just weirdness i don't and that's that's relative i mean it's a very weird movie and for a number of reasons jake laid out but just i don't know it just never came over to me as being like it never feels out of control it feels like they had just enough money to get it done and i feel like you could just use a little bit more of just like sort of like what the hell is going on synthesized trumpet soundtrack george eastman and hastily cobbled together monkey makeup like what what else do you need i yes i know but like george eastwood's makeup is like it looks it looks like a weird like rasputin the mad monk from a hammer movie but like who who got like pushed out of that like it's really bad makeup but at the same time i mean he was anthropophagus which is like the shittiest makeup in movie history and i and will forever remember that i might forget his makeup here that's all i'm saying i just feel this movie is you know, even honestly, this is a better movie than Hands of Iron, but I feel like maybe I'll remember Hands of Iron more because it's just shittier in kind of a special way. And it's hard to it's hard to describe. This one just kind of fell into just a little little kind of a niche for me. Sadly, I don't know. Well, maybe maybe I was just I did watch it first thing getting out of bed, so maybe that was an issue. <laughs> okay, here's a question mm. for you. Does George Eastman look hairier in this movie when he's got monkey makeup on or in Joe D'Amato's porno holocaust where we see him hang dong? Do we? You see, because I was to go back to your point about saying, you know, that George Eastman can fuck. It's like I'm pretty he doesn't do that in porno holocaust, which felt like a great act of restraint. To me. Doesn't he get a zombie um, beach? I thought he got a zombie no. beach in Porno Holocaust. Oh. No, okay. I don't think no, no. He he only like he he shows up in that just to talk and he wrote it because he's gambled all his money. Because Porno Holocaust <laughs> is literally George Eastman getting another paycheck because he gambled it all. So he asked yeah. if they could write another movie while they were making a movie, and George Eastman wrote a movie overnight and it shows. <laughs> but <laughs> So like, yeah, no, no harm there. <laughs> Yeah, it's weird looking at George Eastman, though, because even though he is in this, like, gross, weird monkey makeup and dressed like Sinbad, he doesn't look all that different <laughs> from his outfit in Anthropophagus or uh, what was the other one we watched? Uh, the uh, the alternate title for it is horrible. Ah, oh, shit. I can't think of the name of it. It's a slasher. <laughs> you can, you might find it under of... the name horrible. <laughs> is that the other D'Amato one? The... Uh... What the hell is that called? George Eastman puts a woman's head in the oven. The movie. Oh, yeah, that one. But yeah, he looks the same. Like every <laughs> single movie he's in, he looks like his his skin is covered in dirt and his flesh is decaying, and you can't tell if it's makeup or if that's just George Eastman. Real handsome. Well, gent. You should 
You should I watch him in like. Babies. <laughs> he's in in uh, Mario Barfoot's rabbit dogs. He's just sweaty. Like he's not in makeup. He's just super sweaty. I think the other title you were looking for is absurd. If I'm not mistaken. Absurd. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. It's like, That's well, right. why don't we call the movie horrible? No, because then people won't think it's any good. Well, what if we just call it absurd? Yeah, I guess we can. Perfect. <laughs> Slap it but on there. Sir, it's it's just a, a really like, you know, paint by numbers slasher movie. Well, uh, actually absurd. <laughs> also known as Anthropophagus 2, Zombie 6, Monster Hunter, Horrible, and The Grim Reaper 2. That's quite a list Great. of alternate titles. Love it. Wow. Love it. There you go. <laughs> Classic. And and the movie certainly bears out all of those stamps of quality. Yeah. The other thing that's great about this movie, Jack, that you are, are clearly overlooking, uh, because as I said before, you're you're just a hoe, uh, is the fact that there's like all these bizarre side characters that are on screen for like three seconds, just long enough for you to know what the fuck was that, and then they're gone. Uh, there's a huge string of these in the beginning. So there's this weird clown robot. And after you win the death race, 2000 oh, yeah. death match, then this annoying clown robot. That's actually just played by a person, even though it's supposed <laughs> to be like an auto- automaton, it, it like spits out coins. And then you can use the coins to kill people. Like it's a license to kill. Just yeah. present your coin. Not that anyone yeah, seems to have an issue with murder in this world, but sure, that is true. That and that's a really weird mechanic that makes it, that has nothing to do with the rest of the film. Like no. he just does then, that and he murders some guys <laughs> and cashes in his coins, and then that like it's John Wick, and then nothing, nothing, nothing else happens. Nothing at all. And then the other thing that I really enjoyed in this is he also, in addition to his murder coins that he doesn't actually need. He also gets a prostitute and she her dub is amazing. She's just got this like really weird deliberate deep voice and it it reminds me of the uh the SNL sketch from the early 2000s with uh Will Ferrell and Rachel uh Dretch Dretch the, the Spartan cheerleaders. No 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 no. The uh the the one where they're in the hot tub and they call each other lover like Oh yes. And and that one that's what she talks like so what when she's she's riding around on our hero's motorcycle and she's just like i didn't know what he was until i had made love with him <laughs> that's all i could think of <laughs> it's the same thing the whole sequence what I, what I like about this and this this almost like characterizes another john carpenter film but i think this does this predate or him at the same year as big trouble in little china um, um, yeah, around the same time. Yeah. This around, is, around yeah, the same time, like 83. 83. Same year. Big yeah. Trouble, I think, so, 85. Mm-hmm. Is it 85? Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe. maybe it is. Maybe I, I thought it was a little earlier. But anyhow, I feel like this has a kinship with that other John Carpenter film in that the hero in this movie sucks. He's not good at anything. They, like, hire him because he wins the death race, but he totally gets his car trashed in the death race. Mm-hmm. He just gets out of it and kicks the two guys off a cliff afterwards. Yeah. Like he sucks. They they put they push his car out off the cliff because they drive better than him. And then he keeps getting his ass beaten in fights. Like all he does is he just does like awkward little flips. Um, and just know well, that. And then he gets his ass saved. Well, by he, a, he by is pretty good at kicking people from a prone position with his hands chained behind his back. Mm-hmm. No, he's, good at that. he's got some moves there that can be used. That can be useful in the future. <laughs> I mean, what 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 kind of expectations can you have for a hero named Possible? I mean. <laughs> Good luck. Like you're you're big on, you're ripping off 
Beastmaster. You're ripping off Snake Pliskin, okay, which is a totally badass <laughs> name. And the best yeah. you can come up with is Parsival. What? <laughs> Again, like we're gonna we're gonna talk about another movie after this where the the hero's name is Striker. Like that's fucking badass. There is nothing badass about Parsival. What? <laughs> it lulls you into a false sense of security. There's a lot of things because you you talk about like how this movie has like a cast of characters who appear and disappear. The bad guys in the movie also like there's a guy who I thought was the main bad guy, and then he gets his eyes gouged out, and I'm like, oh, he's dead. And then he gets his eyes fixed, and he no shows way. up for, like, one he's, more scene, and then he gets he's... shot. So I thought, oh, they're just going to put his eyes, get or get new eyes back in him, but he spends basically the rest of the movie recovering from eye surgery, and then he's killed as soon as he's done. That's yeah, and in, in a random double cross with another person who is then, I guess, actually the main bad character but like i mean there's kind of a confusion there i don't really yeah i, was, I wasn't Dude. sure who was like where's the showdown yeah i i love the, the the bald guy the bald bad guy who gets his eyeballs <laughs> ripped out because he does his whole like bad guy speech and then one of parsifal's bros just rips this guy's eyes out and then the rest of the scenes that he's in he's just laying on like a gurney and he's just like as soon as i could see again i'm really gonna fuck them up just you wait till i get my eyes back boy howdy they're in trouble and then as soon as he gets his eyes back he's like and now it's time to get them. And she's like, no. And she just shoots him immediately. <laughs> I mean, the, the more, again, like everything else in the movie, the more I talk about it, it's like, that's that's potentially a really interesting thing. But I don't know if that was on purpose. I don't know Dude, if it was conceived how, of as an interesting dramatic device. And he's got this how like crazy love this? office. <laughs> he's got this crazy office where like his desk is adorned with like glowing screens and he's got a, a giant Picasso painting behind him. Yeah, he's got Guernica, just like the the like the real painting, like huge, just behind him, just cause. Yeah, because uh, they're European. Well, it's, uh, this, it's important to note in this film actually that Europe wins, like defeats America in this movie. Oh yeah, um, Asia, the, Europe, and Africa have become a new nation called the Eurax, which is the enemy. <laughs> Urex and they defeat the like the new US alliance or whatever and that's like the the aftermath is is the Urex trying to clean up but our hero is employed by the like American alliance to find the fertile woman who and there's another weird switch because we find the beautiful woman and like former she's literally a former Miss World or whatever and apparently was like 15 when she won that because that's a very creepy competition but anyway and um, and he finds her and i was like okay so that's the woman it's pretty convenient that it turns out she's the woman because they meet in like a sewer but you know whatever fair enough that's how movies work turns out she's not it turns out the the actual woman is like in a sleeping beauty glass case and just randomly shows up later and then and then the other woman just dies uh, yeah. yeah this film just defies <laughs> expectations but in like the least kind of cogent fashion i can i can imagine mm-hmm. well the i the part where she, the other woman who's not the most fertile woman <laughs> when she dies it's just it's so out of left field and the whole reason why she's killed is insane because okay so parsival gets recruited by the president to go to New York to get the fertile lady. To help Parsifal, the president sends a guy with a claw arm who apparently knows New York like he's got a mental map of the whole city. And that's well, his, his Bronx. utility. Yeah, his name's Bronx, so that's that makes sense. Dead giveaway. 
Yeah. And then the other guy is just this dude with an eye patch and like two ball bearings that he whips at everybody. And it's just like, the strongest an man. Bola Riscard. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's kind of like whatever. But the only reason that we know that cyborgs exist in this world, and this is important, is because this scene. I didn't know what he was until I had made love with him. When the prostitute remarks, when she sees like a, a dismembered cyborg on the side of the road, it's just a guy with like wires sticking out of his arm. She's like, yeah, cyborgs, a fucked one like that. <laughs> and then later at the very end, like literally the last 10 minutes, Parcival goes, hey, I patch bolo guy. I know you're a cyborg. You know how I know? Because you're a bitch-ass cyborg. That's how I know. And then they kill. They, they try to kill each other. Why Why does Parsifal hate cyborgs? Why are cyborgs bad? Why are they fighting? Why does it matter if Eyepatch is a cyborg? He has saved your life at least ten times throughout this he movie, has. Parsifal. Yeah, Parsifal what stops at fighting. Cyborg guy keeps bailing him out. And since we know cyborgs exist because of the previous comment... Like, as soon as he shows up and's like, he's the strongest man in the world, and he, you know, just beats up a bunch of people, I I don't know about you guys, I was like, oh, so he's a cyborg. And yeah, never that's what I thought. Until the very end. Yeah. But I, I didn't think hidden. it mattered. Like, I didn't think it was a big deal, but apparently it's a big fucking deal in 2019 New York to be a fucking I mean, cyborg. Paves the way for, for Hands of Iron, another cyborg-adjacent uh, film. It's just, it's so, it's so fucking weird. Um, but <laughs> I don't know, man. There's, there's just a lot of great shit in this movie. And if you make a movie where George Eastman is a monkey who bangs Sleeping Beauty and then throws a giant knife decapitating like eight people, I mean, it's good. It's automatically good. That, that's that was that's the cool benchmark. Scene. The whole tunnel <laughs> scene makes, uh, what I love about the tunnel scene, they have to escape by car. So they stick some, uh, uh, like, they, they stick armor on the car, but not on, like, the windshield, right? No. <laughs> so it just sticks them on the roof. Like, it's, all all gunshots will hit the roof first. It's and just crude, too. It's, like, two giant pieces of plywood. Yeah, no, it looks it looks like they, it looks like someone's bringing a mattress home. That's like their armor plating of the car. It's like it just looks like shit, and it's like yeah. just a big old station wagon, so they can fit Sleeping Beauty in the back. And they just drive through this tunnel. They, first off, they meet a security like a security fence and they the security fence gate comes down so they can't go so they just drive through the guard tower beside it which is made out of like <laughs> cheap lumber which doesn't make it's not a very imposing security system and then they drive down this long tunnel to escape from new york just like uh, snake Plissken would also do in similar fashion they drive down this this tunnel and the tunnel just has like has like spikes that your car's tires will get on but they're they're car with the part and you can just kind of drive through <laughs> yeah, them yeah they're, they're in then, like a cool like end, like zigzag pattern <laughs> instead of yeah, just yeah it's being like a driving everywhere. test <laughs> and then and then you go down another little bit and then there's just a giant cannon in the middle of the tunnel like a fixed you know like stuck there so nothing could drive down this tunnel anyway because it's just a giant cannon in the middle of it and they shoot the cannon shoots the car repeatedly but it does nothing apparently uh, particularly, I guess, it does, is that when Big Ape bites it, maybe? Weirdly, because they somehow manage to shoot to the back of the vehicle. None of this makes any sense. Anyhow, it's just one of those, those things where... <laughs> it's one of those scenarios where, like, the waiting of it... It's kind of like you get the idea, okay, our heroes in a car, they have to get to the end of the tunnel, then they're free, there's bad guys in the tunnel. I mean, it's a very basic 
action scenario, but then all of the permutations within it don't make any sense. It's like they're shooting the front of the car and the guy at the back dies. Um, they have to just, like, obstacles show up. They can drive through them or around them. Um, it's a very confusing film. Very strange. I feel like a lot of it was put together with whatever they had. There is one scene, though, that I do want to comment on, which is because um, this film looks clearly cheap but like it's got some pretty interesting serviceable things but there is one scene in like a bus graveyard and i just want to know where the hell they found that because it's really cool it's like hundreds of just destroyed bosses and uh, it's a really great place to set a scene and i'm just wondering where they found that it's a bus graveyard somewhere i yeah, yeah i don't I mean, know i guess so yeah it's it's pretty wild i don't i where this movie ends up going too is bizarre because you think it's going to get to a point where, you know, a uh, fake snake Pliskin, Mr. Parsifal comes back and they're like, well, you've completed your mission. Now we're going to kill you. But instead the president's like, well, I've got cancer. So I guess you get to go into space where we're going to put babies inside sleeping beauty. So congratulations. You get my, my special spot on the special spaceship. And then if you're I like, recall, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, if but, I recall correctly, Sleeping Beauty never wakes up either. Like, at no point is she cognizant of the fact that she's basically no. going to be well, repopulating. No, that's the, the last planet. shot of the movie is her yeah, opening her eyes. and that's where it gets it, really weird. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like the because, passenger's prequel. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> Chris she, Pratt she, wakes her up in space for sex. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I mean, imagine, like, just the the movie ends. She's slept through the apocalypse. She's slept through a good chunk of the post apocalypse. She's just laying there. She wakes up, and Parsifal has to be like, "Hey, I'm Parsifal. Hi. Uh, just so you know, we're in space. You're the only fertile woman left alive, and there is a monkey growing inside of you. So I yeah. can make babies. Thank you, George Eastman. We appreciate you. Uh, it's just. It's totally yeah. fucking bonkers. It's it's insane. And I, yeah, I, I don't even know. If I can't you, argue if you, that. Yeah. If you like weird Italian knockoff movies or just like 80s schlock or just you, you like drinking six beers and having a good time, I cannot recommend this enough. It's fucking bonkers. Don't listen to Jack. We try not to here. We just we just let him talk. Just it's it's good. It's good stuff. Jake will back me up on this. Yeah, I highly <laughs> recommend it. Even as a sober person, I uh, really enjoyed myself. It, it does look cheap, but uh, I say there's some charm to that with these uh, these kinds yeah. of films. I was For sober sure. when I watched it. Was that my my issue? I don't know. That that could that could be a problem. That could be a problem. I'm just saying, if if you have monkey people in your movie for zero reason at all, and their monkey makeup is literally falling off of their face. Uh, you've made a good movie. That's all there like, is to it's it. It's literally just so they can rip off another movie. Like, if there's a plan, like, it's, it's like fucking Dollar General Planet of the Apes makeup. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's Like, I bet somewhere in Italy this was marketed as, like, Planet of the Apes 7. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. But yeah, there's, there's that scene where when they enter Big Ape George Eastman's monkey lair and his monkey bros are hanging out. And they're just like eating bananas and there's a guy in the background chewing out a banana and his prosthetic is just like drooping off of his face. It's incredible <laughs> stuff. Cannot recommend this enough. I mean, I can make babies. it's really good. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, another movie that we watched, it falls under my second favorite category of post-apocalyptic films, 
which is movies that I thought were post-apocalyptic, but it turns out they just take place in Texas. Same thing. So, <laughs> gentlemen, we watched a little movie called Savage Dawn, and as high praise as I have for 2019 after the fall in New York, if you are listening to this right now, you are doing yourself a great disservice if you do not immediately upon ending this podcast go out and watch this movie there's a new vinegar syndrome blu-ray that you could pick up it's also streaming in dog shit quality for free on youtube if that's more your jam you need to watch savage dawn it is a masterwork of explosions and stupidity and i love it with every fiber I of my can, being <laughs> can understand why this one is not like part of that 80s action canon it is so good. It's got it, and it's got everything, and it's got yeah. the cast. I mean, the, just the cast alone. It's like Lance Henriksen, George Kennedy, Bill Forsyth. Like, yeah. How is this? How how am I only learning about this film recently? Because Vinegar Syndrome released it. What happened? Yeah. No idea. No idea. And uh, you know, we, this is a movie where Lance Henriksen is amazing. Uh, George Kennedy does what George Kennedy does best, where he looks like he showed up like hung over to, to the set and they're like, all right, George, just sit in this damn wheelchair. Just don't, don't do anything. Please. I, yeah, I do wonder was the wheelchair setting just so he didn't have to stand Dude, up. Like just <laughs> Bill Forsyth straight up looks like Tim Heidecker with a mullet. Like this, <laughs> it's I mean, so we know. good. Like, like Steven Seagal's best film, like bar none is out for justice. And it's solely his best film pretty much because Bill Forsyth plays the main villain and he's insane and he's great. And this movie is a lot of that same energy. He's just such a good villain. Um, and he yeah. plays, of course, the leader of the savages, the uh, biker gang that threatened this town that also just seems to suck anyway um of which this it, town this rocks town, <laughs> are I you mean, fucking kidding major, me it's major cultural event is each year it has a bare knuckle brawl um which is yeah, called the according fight. to the sign yeah well it's it's called like the 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 like annual tough guy contest <laughs> that's right that's the sign so the five you know, guys what else would you there. call it <laughs> Yeah, and it's and it's just the 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 sheriff's deputy is like the reigning champ, and they just just fucking wail on each other while a bunch yeah. of people just stand around, and then all the women just live in fear of being raped, and then the mm -hmm. bikers show up and they threaten them with rape too. Like it's it's just a really bad situation. But George Kennedy lives here, so yeah. with his family, with his like son and daughter. So Lance Henriksen comes to visit them. I love the idea as well because they they know each other because they're like ex mercenaries. Like Lance Henriksen we used oh. to be a mercenary, and George Kennedy used to design their weapons. And it's like they're hooking up afterwards, so they can like hang out with each other's families. And it's like this I, seems okay. really nice I have for some, mercenaries. I have some really big questions here, specifically we about Lance do. Lance Henriksen's role. So he plays Striker, the the badass mercenary. And like you yeah. said, he's going to bro down with his boy, George Eastman, who looks like he's 90 years older than him at this point. Uh, although that's because George Eastman always looks like he's 100 years old. And for a long period of time, Lance Henriksen always looked 40. So that's kind of the issue here. But Lance Henriksen rolls up and he's got this bleach blonde hair, which is not a normal Lance Henriksen look, but it makes him look a little bit older than he already was. And he was in his 40s when this was shot. And... The first thing that stuck out to me is Lance Hendrickson is a mercenary. He's always prepared for everything. And yet he didn't bring his scuba gear. And here he is. As soon as he rolls into town, he's drowning in pussy because he parks his motorcycle 
And the sheriff immediately goes, what are you doing here? You come to steal our women? And Lance Henriksen doesn't say anything. And then this beautiful blonde woman comes up and just starts making out with him because, duh, he's Lance Henriksen. But we find out immediately thereafter, he's like, oh, oh, Susie, oh, I, 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 haven't, I haven't seen you since you were a little girl, since you were just knee-high to a grasshopper, since you were a fresh fetus covered in afterbirth. Come here. Let me slurp on you. And it's like, dude, wait, so you haven't seen her since she was a literal fucking baby, and the first thing you do is make out with her? That seems weird to me. I don't know. It just struck me as odd. I yeah, it's, it's super weird, and it's not like totally Lan, he, Lance Henriksen looks like Lance Henriksen. He's not a real handsome Dan walking around here like flexing. He looks extra. He looks like he rolled into this film like from a like a tanning bed disaster. Like he just looks like he has been just baked. Oh my god! Yeah. His skin is pure leather. He looks like fucking Christian Bale in The Machinist. There's not like an ounce of fat <laughs> on his body at this point. There's it's nothing perfect, sexy I mean, about him. Like, like he rolls up this sun-baked town and he's a sun-baked man. And, you know, yeah, why not? The perfect. Future waste world where the it's perpetually just a hot summer night in the day. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And this is... So I mentioned in, in my little preamble here that... This is not technically a post-apocalyptic movie, but it's easy to forget that because I mean, it's it's kind of structured like a Western, like, oh, the bad bikers have rolled into town. But, yeah. like, the, the whole place is fucking bizarre. It's a church and a bar where there's also, like, cage fighting and a jail. Those are the only, like, three major structures. And then George Eastman's house, which has a workshop where he makes Kennedy. bazookas. George, yeah, George Kennedy. Sorry, George Eastman. Is, <laughs> that's wrong. Guy. That's the other. Baby. Sorry, George Kennedy. <laughs> it's quite. George right. Kennedy cannot make babies. He's in a wheelchair. He's ninety years old at this point. He's gonna unmake some babies in this yeah. film. Oh no, yeah. So, but everything about this is post-apocalyptic. It's it's just a lawless wasteland, and but it's it's not. It's just Texas, and it's it's such a bizarre setting. And I found out because I was listening to the director's commentary after I watched the movie and this none of the structures were there. They just drove into the desert and just built the set. They just built the whole town. So this was their vision. They were just like, okay, we need a weird bridge that doesn't do anything. We need a church with a giant ass steeple. We need the George Kennedy workshop and then this fucking bar. And they just built the whole thing. Like that—that's totally nuts it's, to me. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it, this is a strange one as well because it's pretty like it's very like rough. It doesn't feel like a big budget film, but it also doesn't feel like they were really starved for cash. Like it's it's pretty well put together. They got a lot of. I mean, the cast alone is like oh, Lance yeah. Henriksen, George Kennedy, got Karen Black here, and Bill Forsyth. Like it's it's got this like crazy <laughs> mixture of things, and then. You know all the bikes, the action, the action choreography, a little rough around the edges. I think everyone did their own stunts. I have a feeling, pretty much, pretty much, um, for sure. But but I mean, it looks great. And as it rolls on, like uh, you you talked, Steve, about how this is like a western, and I think that's um you know I think all biker movies are kind of like they're revisionist westerns. That's kind of how the biker movie came along. Was like for the young kids, it's a western, but they have motorbikes now. It's a little cooler, yeah. but very much the same ideas. And, and I feel like this movie is. 
basically it's like it's a revisionist western but it's like a revisionist western with extra sergio leone injected into it yeah it just oh, kind yeah. of like ramps up from you know we replace the horses with motorcycles to there's a tank now and, and that's <laughs> kind of like the whole film it's just like what the heck like and it just builds and builds and builds and gets crazier because it's like you know sure you could just have a motorcycle gang but what would be a motorcycle gang with a tank um <clears throat> which would be a tank gang i guess yeah um, well which is that's the, first that's for the me. whole like that's that's the momentum of the movie is biker gang shows up and they're dickheads and then the town is also full of dickheads and then this woman i can suck start a harley decides i want to be with the bikers they're more my speed joins up with them and then using the powers of sexy boobiness they steal a tank from a nearby military facility and then they're like okay these hayseed town folk were mean to us therefore I will blow them all up with a tank. And that's that's the movie. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. like, the, the, I'm not sure what the vendetta is, because, like, they, the town arrest one of the guys, but they arrest him for, like, flagrantly, like, beating up one of the sheriffs. In, well, would they, like, beat him up after the tough guy contest? They, yeah. like, disrupt it. Um, and someone gets arrested for some reason. I don't remember why. But, yeah, it, it doesn't really doesn't really make sense why the grievance stands and the town we like i really we can't emphasize enough how shitty the town is to begin with like it's not worth saving so when the bikers start trashing it it's kind of like probably probably for the best to be honest no one seems mm. happy there no um it's it's just an awful awful place so it's kind of like i'm kind of with the bikers to a certain degree but lance henriksen i'm with him more because you know you gotta let him kick ass um yeah. And he does that, and then they, and then we have a weird epilogue too, because it, it, this is another movie where you kind of have a clear. You, this one at least has a clear cut bad guy in mm-hmm. Bill Forsyth, but then he kind of dies, and then just keeps going for a while, and then another guy turns out to be also like the main bad guy because he gets his own thing, which is a bit weird. Like he, yeah. he's just sort of henchman, and then suddenly he gets dispatched later on in like his own stylish epilogue. Yeah, but I'm like not complaining because the- it's pretty cool. It is. It's a cool epilogue. It doesn't make any. It does not make a lick of fucking sense. But yeah, there's like they, they try to they try to get away, and it's like three guys. There's like nondescript biker, uh, cool hat man with a cool leather jacket who I guess is the last one to die. So he's the new main guy, and then I, yeah, the, he's, the he's comic like the, relief like jester character. Who yeah, looks he's like, like the, the heavy. Yeah, he's the heavy. He's the heavy. His Even though he gets his ass kicked. <laughs> like he's yeah he's the heavy except that there was also the heavy um played by oh god what's what's the actor's name um, Harry bearded in, man like, everything yeah Harry bearded man Mickey Jones um yeah. who if you don't know just just if you don't know who Mickey Jones is just Google him and you will instantly go oh yeah that guy and yeah. he's he enters the all American tough guy contest so like and he and he's gets his ass beat actually so i guess maybe he isn't the tough guy but anyway like he normally he'd be the tough guy like they've got just such there's such a depth of this like like such like a great sports team like the bench is just full of like fantastic genre film players too oh Um, yeah i also want to like you know spit out like uh richard lynch who's shown up in all kinds of like cult cinema plays the preacher who uh, pretty much just openly fucks every woman in the village, and they're all <laughs> fine with it apparently. Yeah, why um, not? And, and all, he, all he does is he has sex with women and then says like, "I'm having like a crisis of faith. You know, I'll have to ask God to forgive me later. What are you doing later?" And that's like that's him, and he sweats a lot because everyone sweats in this movie. 
Yeah. I, I really like, yeah. I, I like the, the comic relief jester guy. I, I don't think I've ever seen him in anything else, but he, I don't know. He looks like Bill Mosley playing spider Jerusalem from trans metropolitan. And he just like I, I, the whole time he's just acting like, like a coked out Daffy duck. He's just like, <laughs> and getting his ass kicked, you know? Yeah. And then George Kennedy yeah. shoots him with a bazooka. <laughs> yeah. And he gets a pretty good uh, dummy death later on too. Just mm-hmm. oh, the, yeah, the really lifeless falling. Uh, but we, we should mention that Lance Henriksen is, I can't think of any other film where he's kind of like a leading action hero. Um, more often than not, he's usually the, the villain, but here he like, he wraps a, a rattlesnake around his fist and punches a guy with it. And then he's the doing conveniently a- placed rattlesnake in <laughs> yeah. a fist fight. It's like they're having a fist fight, and then in the next shot, suddenly there's a rattlesnake a visible, snake. and you're like, "Oh, oh, that that's gonna fit in." Yeah, it's amazing. It's it really is an incredible movie. So again, if you're listening right now, finish the podcast. Oh, and then you know, go to our iTunes page and give us a five star review and a written review. And uh, after you finish that, you should watch this movie immediately. Like. It will it will bring you untold joy during your quarantine. I promise you. Yeah. Promise. I have, you I have a feeling this is going to become like a semi annual revisit for me. This oh, is just yeah. everything you want in a movie. Oh, for all sure. Stuck for sure. in together, just fantastic. Yeah. If if I had to, if I had to take like one movie, if someone was just like, what describes your taste in film, Steve? I this is a strong contender for that. Like this is everything I love. This and like Commando. That's that's my shit right there. <laughs> That's all I need. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And uh and Porno Holocaust. Joe D'Amato's Porno Holocaust. That's another one. Uh anyways. <laughs> I guess we're gonna have to bring the mood down a little bit, boys. Uh the, yeah. the so the first two movies that we chose, kind of uh, you know, uh, a fun, action-y romp. Uh, a, a more I guess positive view of what the future could be like. Certainly a, a view with more Lance Henriksen. And, uh, you know, a guy named Parsifal, which that sounds great. But instead, <laughs> what if you were just in Australia? Wouldn't that suck? <laughs> so, you, mean, you mean the post-apocalypse isn't going to be fun, Steve? <laughs> no, it doesn't seem like it's going to be now. I had my hopes up until I watched the other two movies for this podcast. So the third film that we watched is The Rover, which takes place in the Australian outback in uh, like some nondescript period following the apocalypse i think about a decade ten years after. after the collapse 10 10 years after the collapse that's all we and hear. as far as i can tell this is just pretty much what the australian outback looks like anyways i could be wrong but i assume <laughs> this is just what it was like so maybe maybe i was being a little bit hard on the old outback but basically it's kind of a revenge movie but it's got this real singular weird laser focus where a guy gets his car stolen by some uh, nefarious bandits and he just spends the entire movie trying to get his sob back because he, he loves the, the safety and the, the, the you know passenger side airbags and the sob. You got to have them. So uh, we, we find out at the end why he's actually after the car, which I don't I don't know if it's much better of a reason. But, you know, when when the world has gone to shit, you got to cling to what you got. And if someone takes your car, you got to murder a dozen people to get it back. That's what we learned. Uh, but this one, I, I don't know. I, I'm kind of torn on it. I I enjoyed it, and I thought it was good. I don't know if enjoy is the right word. <laughs> it's a good movie. <laughs> but it, it felt almost too sparse for me, 
which is weird because normally I'm mm. I'm a big fan of quit telling me shit. You don't have to do all this world building nonsense. Just just give me something to sink my teeth into. But this this may be the the lone exception to that. So Jake, I know you're a you're a big fan of this one. So maybe maybe you can kind of change my mind on this one a little bit. Sell uh, me on yeah, the rover, sure. baby. I'm arguably the biggest fan of this movie uh, you will uh, uh, ever meet. Um, I I just I don't know. I think it's it's just everything I want in a movie, and it's just it's so I I love the sparseness. I love how minimalist it is. I love we don't get any exposition. The world has ba- basically gone to shit, and the only thing that's worth anything is American money. Um, I love that. Brad Pitt is really, or not, not Brad Pitt, Jesus Christ. Uh, Guy <laughs> Pierce is this uh, taciturn drifter, and uh, yeah, the Brad it's Pitt just of England, the simplest Guy Pierce. Yeah, Australian Brad Pitt, Guy Pierce, yeah, Austra- you know. Australian, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but just his performance, I think, is just extraordinary because he's so stoic and steely. And then when you get him like in a room and he, when he starts talking to you, it's like he's so intense and I, I, I'm just like, I, I miss this guy Pierce because I don't know if he's done anything this well since. But I, yeah, I don't know. I, it's just a bunch of stuff in this movie that works for me. And like the ultimate reason why he's after his car. I love I love that. I love that he will just bluntly shoot a guy in the head for what seems to be no reason. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's. It's uh, and it's also it's like this. It's more of like a road movie at heart because he's also uh, teams up with Robert Pattinson, who's like sort of beginning his post Twilight phase of his career at this time, and he was really expanding as an actor. And I think he's excellent here too. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think I think the Rover just uh, it just hums for me in ways that most other movies try to, but do ultimately do not. Yeah, Pattinson's interesting in this because. This came out in 2014, I think. So I know he like post Twilight, he was really trying to establish himself as a serious actor. And this is one of the first like serious business roles that he took. And it's interesting to me because I I think it's it's kind of a complex character. And he plays this guy who, you know, he's a brother. He's the brother of one of the people who stole Guy Pierce's car. And he's he's kind of not all there mentally. He's, he's got a little bit of uh, Jim Belushi and Homer and Eddie. Homer! So he's got that going and he's got all these like little nervous ticks and things that he does. And it's, it's really well acted. But the thing I couldn't wrap my head around is he's got this bizarre, like West Virginia Southern accent that he really commits to. And I, I, it just, it made the whole thing feel a little bit odd and off to me, but his performance was still good. I was just like, why the fuck are you doing this? So it's I, like I tried to look into it. 10 years after the apocalypse. Yeah. I, he's just, yeah. he's just been watching a lot of King of the Hill and he's like, boom, Howard, that's what I need. Uh, but he, I guess the director, when Robert Pattinson got the role, the director was like, okay, so here's this character and I want you to watch the movie Bully. Uh, which is from the the director uh, Larry Clark, the director of Kids. I want you to watch the bully, the, the movie Bully, because that's where I want you to kind of like channel this character from or whatever. So in my head, I was thinking, did he take that too literally? Did he watch Bully, and does everyone in Bully have a Southern accent? Because I haven't seen that movie since it came out like a decade ago. And I watched the trailer, and it's like, no, that takes place in Southern California. So I don't know where the fuck this is coming from. So I have no idea what he's doing here, but it's. It's interesting. 
And it would in, explain. In, what's mm-hmm. that? Oh, go ahead, Jack. No, I was just saying that that would explain because yeah, I, I'm I didn't get a chance to revisit this movie, so I don't know. I'm I'm basing on like a couple of years ago when I watched it last time, but I didn't really. This movie didn't really work for me either. But um, that would explain because uh, Bully is another movie that I absolutely hated. So maybe <laughs> maybe it's the problem. Maybe it's just all the things I don't I don't like gathered together. Too much bully. Too much bully. I mean, it's it's a yeah. bold choice, and in a movie that tries to be as minimalist as humanly possible, there's a few random flourishes that really stick out. Uh, there's a, there's another one where uh, Guy Pierce is arrested by these like military police soldier guys that are out yeah. in the Australian outback, and that leads to what I think is probably the best scene in the whole movie, where you know he's been arrested and this guy is kind of half-ass interrogating him a little bit and questioning. He was like, oh boy, you're fucked, blah, blah, blah. Look at you, ha, ha, ha. And then Guy Pierce just kind of turns it around on this soldier and basically interrogates him. And then Robert Pattinson comes and guns it blazing and saves the day. And when they're leaving, this weird pop song just starts blasting over the soundtrack. Yeah. And prior to this, the whole soundtrack was just like menacing strings and then out of nowhere, we just get some pop jam, like I, some Kylie Minogue banger that I've never heard before or something. It's really bizarre. And it's one of those things that really makes you kind of like sit up straight and pay attention. Because you're like, oh, where the fuck did that come from? Yeah, well, I was I saw this movie in the theaters back when it came out. And when that pop song started blasting on all speakers, I thought like the movie theater next door, like an, a door had opened and somehow the sound had carried through or something because it's yeah. totally incongruous to like the hour, 15 minutes plus before it happens. And then it, but then it dissolves to, it's just Robert Pattinson listening to the song in the car at night. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I think, I think it's a very, I, I like the scene so much. It's a very tender moment that the character has is just sitting there kind of singing along as best as he can to this Carrie Hilson pop track. But um, yeah, yeah, that and that whole sequence where guy or guy Pierce is telling the soldier that he killed his wife and uh, because she slept with another man and he buried them in their backyard. But like nobody ever came for him and he kind of just felt angry at being that nobody would come from from that. And just this wasted existence that he's led since then is worse than having his heart broken. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. I just think it's. this just is such is so like its elements are so pared down, but I just I think it does what it does really well, and I just enjoy watching it. Yeah, it, yeah. even though if it might be too bleak or brutal or grim or just sparse for some people, I understand that completely. But um, it's uh, it just clicks for me every time. I've seen it like five times now, and I love it every mm. single time. Yeah, it's yeah, definitely. It's, I mean, you you can't really push to people as like a storyline like it's very much a mood piece and i guess you're just kind of in with it or not i just i don't i guess it just didn't vibe too like perfectly for me and then i just i don't know what it's about even as it wraps up i don't feel that it's like told me anything um i I don't know it just it wasn't really a movie that could could kind of gel with me but then again i guess you know after the fall of civilization you know maybe the the lack of a coherent value structure kind of fits in uh, that he's just got his one thing he's gonna do, and then after that, presumably he doesn't care anymore. So yeah, yeah I, it's kind of like yeah, everything's falling apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, this is definitely something that's it's not for everyone for sure. But I'd say it's worth a shot. All you got is fucking time. You're just sitting at home anyway. So hey, watch it. It's on Netflix. 
What are you, what are you doing? What are you doing that's better? Nothing. Yeah. Not doing anything. And hey, do you like bleakness? Because, oh boy, do I have a movie for you. That's right, kids. It's time to tune in the old telly. The year is 1985, and the BBC nightly movie is on. Gee whiz, Dad. Oh, gee whiz, Pop. What's on tonight? Well, I don't know, son. Let's ah. find out, shall we? Oh, why don't we? Let's turn on the telly. Why and what do you know? It's a little movie called Threads. And <laughs> holy fuck, there's a very select few group. There's very select few movies that I would put into a group that I would designate extremely good must watch with the caveat of never, ever watch again. And that would be Shoah, um, Come and See, and this movie, Threads. <laughs> so Threads... <It's> really... <laughs> That's what you're getting into you're really with this selling one. This. I am really selling. But again, it's just like you could be like, oh yeah, like like Come and See is probably the greatest war movie ever made. And people are like, oh yeah, I should watch that. Oh, I really like Saving Private Ryan. No, it's not really Saving Private Ryan. It's a little different. A little different. This, is, this one is is impressive in that like I mean it's it's very like to me like Peter Watkins' The War Game, which is a clear antecedent to this and was also made by BBC but was too bleak in 1966 the BBC didn't broadcast it it was too controversial because it is spoiler alert about the same thing as threats which is that if there's a nuclear war the government won't be able to do anything like nothing will work it will be very bad yeah. you know and that honestly dying in the explosion might be your best case scenario you might want that for you and your family it, yeah it would just be easier Inst um, instant death is preferred in this case yeah and it's like the, the, um the war game which is a, a phenomenal piece of work it's it's a masterpiece and it's kind of it's done in that kind of like uh docu documentary style you know and very kind of ground level images and studiously researched and peter watkins made that in the 60s and then the bbc didn't show it because it literally ended with stuff like uh, British police going around and just shooting invalids because they couldn't, you know, because they couldn't treat them for anything. And this was actually part of Britain's uh, plan for if they ever did were subjected to a nuclear attack. You know, it makes sense rather than spreading disease that you would just kill people you can't save and bury them. But you don't want to tell the public this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and, of course, it exposes the bald-faced stupidity of the Cold War and mutually assured destruction, that it's it's just a completely just nightmarish scenario. Yeah. Um, and then, so, so it's like 20 years later, somewhere the BBC were just like, actually, you know what, let's, let's just lean into it. And they make this, which is arguably more <laughs> harrowing than the war game because it throws in, like, actual characters. It's not like, you know, Vox Pops and Reconstructions. Like, we, we follow, like, a young couple who've become unexpectedly pregnant and they're getting engaged. They're going to settle down, the working class, you know, and just make a go of it. And then, and what I, what I really like about it as well, it's like, Britain's not even really involved in this. It's the US and Russia, uh, which blow up Iran first, which isn't a problem. Uh, yeah. You know, they're just like, we nuked Iran, and they just move on from that. And I was like, that's actually a brilliant touch to how uh, the next war probably will go down. It's like, they'll just torch the Middle East, uh, but then it will expand from there. And um, yeah, it's it's just... 
like holy crap they broadcast this on tv and and i found out they broadcast this on tv and then afterwards they broadcast the war game for the first time on the bbc <laughs> which they banned previously so they were really going all in on just making british people sad that day yeah and just, maybe uh, just terrified yeah yeah you want uh, get, get a little taste uh, and why not have the whole meal here's both back to back Steve mentioned it earlier, but I haven't had like this much of a visceral reaction to watching a film since I saw Come and See, which I think was about two years ago. Um, it's just it becomes like relentlessly grim. And uh, there's this the way it's it kind of works is there's a few, you know, there's no real clear into protagonist. I mean, we do have a few people that we follow, but it is following through several different threads uh, in the film about like, you know, what you know, bureaucratic red tape and what these several families are doing in Sheffield. And um, it reminded me of a lot of Shin Godzilla, where we're kind of seeing like a breakdown of uh, names, faces, locations of people dealing with this uh, pandemic as it's occurring. But the problem is that unlike Shin Godzilla, which has a, a relatively happy ending where they defeat the monster, this just gets worse and worse and worse. And just when you think it can't get any imaginably worse, it does. And um, yeah, it's like Steve said, it's it's a fantastic. I highly recommend it, but you don't want to watch it more than once. And this is like one of the few films that where I was watching it with my wife in the room uh, and she would just at one point she turned and looked at me and says, was the whole point of this movie just to make it as horrifyingly realistic as possible? And I'm like, yeah, pretty much. That's pretty yeah, much who, it. Who could have imagined nuclear war is like bad and stuff. Yeah. Like it seemed really cool in all the marketing. But yeah, it yeah. turns out it's going it's going to suck. Kind um, of a bummer. Yeah, I yeah. I think the thing that really struck struck out stuck out to me in threads is, I mean, obviously the bleakness, but. I love the way that this movie is kind of structured and and put together because it starts off almost like a like a working class melodrama like it feels like something Bob Clark would do or like a kind of a a dingier version of East Enders or something because in the beginning yeah. we're given this story of oh there's this young couple and you know oh no she accidentally got pregnant but we're in the middle of you know, Thatcher's England. So there's this depression and, and people don't have jobs because Sheffield has gone to shit. And there's all these issues of of class and economic status and how this is negatively affecting people. And as the, the geopolitical war game stuff starts to ramp up <clears throat> and you see little snippets of it in, in news clips that are playing in the background, these people are just kind of going through their lives and they're just like, well, fuck, we just, we got to do what we got to do. We got to, you know, go to the grocery store, get some food, whatever. And they, they're just trying to survive day to day without thinking about the real ramifications of what's about to happen, because that's how it is. It's like everything kind of sucks. And then in an instant, like society just doesn't exist. And so, yeah, once that bomb drops though, it, it does this amazing thing where it sort of cross cuts between the the dramatic narrative stuff which slowly starts to dissolve away as society gets worse and worse and then it mashes that up with actual footage like real clips from the news at the time of you know bombs going off and tanks driving down the road things like that and then there's also this super deliberate matter-of-fact dry narration that's like 
this is what these people are doing. So it kind of melds this neorealism with actual documentary stuff and then presents it in a pseudo documentary way. And it's, it's absolutely nuts. I've, I don't think I've ever seen a movie that is structured this way and fuck, it's, it's super yeah, effective. It's, it's yeah, it's a really brilliant conceit because, um, it's kind of like, you know, we talk about nowadays, it's all this talk about the golden age of television, and everything, but television is so completely underpowered compared to where it was in the seventies and eighties. Cause in the seventies and eighties, you know, in Britain and America and across the world, most people, everyone had a television in their living room and they only had probably a handful of channels, really, uh, realistically, before pre-cable. And, you know, whatever was on TV, millions of people would tune in to watch whatever it was on any given night. Television had a grasp and a power it's never had since. You know, I mean, the Game of Thrones finale was watched by, like, was a huge television event. I think if you look at the numbers, it's like almost as many people watched just the pilot episode of Miami Vice, like when it just first showed up on TV in the 80s. You know, like, television is so, um, we can argue about, like, is it better now or not? It's not, actually. But anyhow, but, like, it doesn't have anywhere near this, this kind of the power it had of just showing up in everyone's living room when people really didn't have that many alternatives to it. And this film clearly just like the war game would have done before it you know alan and alan clark particularly was a, a filmmaker who did a lot of this stuff on television as well this idea that the kind of the gift of being able to bring material into people's living rooms that they might otherwise never engage with and this film does such a great job because it kind of brings you in on you know what seems like a kitchen sink kind of drama about a young couple struggling to make do and everything and then suddenly there's a nuclear bomb and then suddenly it's kind of like stories don't matter anymore you know kitchen sink dramas don't matter anymore because the kitchen sink is no longer attached to the wall and there's no water you know and it's like it just it does and the the whole film is just just destroys society i mean it lays it lays bare just to kind of how all of the tangled you know kind of interlinking piece of society will just completely untether under this kind of strain and this is our current policy. I mean, and this to this day, this is still our current policy with regards to, you know, international aggression. It's pretty much we're all going to die. So mm-hmm. hopefully no one starts anything. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I just think it's it's just an incredibly powerful thing to you know, ima- like imagine turning your TV on and sitting down and watching that and having God. that just unfold crazy you can't do that now now you'd have to go and find it that's on netflix it would be buried somewhere and someone like no but like they'll find out from an internet sort article so they'll know what they're getting into beforehand you know it's kind of like this it just you will never see this again like anything like this again and there's just an incredible kind of power to it just you know maybe you have to i mean i think it stands alone but you also just get in the headspace of being just some ordinary average punter, you know, tuning in on, on like Wednesday night to the TV and having your entire world shattered. <laughs> I think I mentioned totally earlier wild. that um, I, I would recommend somebody watch this movie, but uh, I would recommend waiting six months or so after we're through this current quarantine to watch it because don't watch this now. Movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't watch this now because there there's roads and phone lines are closed for essential services and uh, grocery stores are being raided. It's 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 funny how we're supposed to turn to entertainment to escape from all this. And yet we pick the one film that is echoing what is happening right outside of our homes that we're like, <laughs> welcome up in right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're, we're like 33 percent into what this film transforms. 
transforms into already. Yeah. So and, yeah, huge, and huge the, encouraging. And our government is worse than like a dozen people who are basically locked up in a basement together trying to figure this shit out with jobs that <laughs> they just figured out that they had when living in like military style barracks as they look yeah. at ancient mm-hmm. maps to... Just to, to give some people to, to give an idea of how how much of a vision of this this film has of how competent the government is, they have to go into a basement because it's the safest place to be, and then the building collapses from the explosion and caves in on the basement. So they all just have to basically do their best on the telephone until they all inevitably die because they can't get out of the basement. Oh, yeah. They're, yeah, and they're great. wrapping up their dead colleagues in plastic trash bags. <laughs> and then they announce that if there's anyone dead in your house, please wrap them up tightly in a cloth. And then after five days, you may bury them in your yard so long as you mark their grave. Yeah. And I mean, it's something to look at. Like, uh, you know, we talk about this is bleak and it's depressing and everything. But um, this is studiously researched. Uh, the list, if you look at the end credits, it's just like about three pages of doctors that mm-hmm. they consulted with. Um, I think even Carl Sagan is in there weirdly. Yeah. Um, but but like it's just just experts they consulted. This is not fanciful. This film is not stretching anything. It doesn't have to. It pretty much is just laying out, and by the end of it, I thought, like, at a certain point, I was like, oh, you know, things are, you know, maybe it's a little over the top, because, like, with not to give away too much, but, like, in the finale, it goes to, like, 13 or so years after the apocalypse, and there's, like, a new generation, and you can tell in the new generation is, like, their language skills are failing, because... They don't have an education system because nothing could really be rebuilt. Everything had to basically go to agriculture like and just like kind of eking a living from the land again. And their language is failing also because no one talks because like there's just every... Like, I mean, 70% or so of the British population is projected to just die in the initial explosion and then fall out and starvation. And then after that, you can't replicate enough food sources, etc. to sustain a higher population. And then everyone who survived that event is completely in shock and traumatized, so they don't speak or do anything. And I mean, I, I remember reading about, like, in uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, the survivors of that, many of them, There's there was some, I can't remember the term for it, but, like, they didn't do anything. Like, you couldn't make them do, they just sat just catatonic. They didn't, you know, because they were just, their entire lives had just been wiped out. It was just like you know, the worst depression you could possibly imagine, like a physical manifestation. They were just, they couldn't do anything. And so in this film that projects like 13 years after nuclear war, like language skills and like language itself might be decaying because humanity is degraded so much so fast. Mm-hmm. And it's it seems insane. But like when you watch the film, you're kind of like, I mean, yeah, maybe... Yeah, it's uh, I I like the way that the movie too it it like as society unravels more and more over time, the the structure of the movie sort of changes too, where it becomes just like quicker cuts, quicker like vignettes of different things happening, and you get to watch just everything just completely unravel and and turn to absolute shit beyond what you could ever imagine. But also, uh, one of the most powerful scenes for me is there's this scene where there's a group of like a half a dozen kids and an older woman and they're sitting in what looks like an old like bombed out auditorium and there's this old television with like a video cassette with a with like a children's uh educational video in it 
you know, the kind of shit that your science teacher would show you. It didn't feel like teaching. And it's just yeah. like, let's sing the bones of the animal song. And the kids are just kind of staring blankly at this as they're like, this is what the bones of a rabbit look like. And all you're thinking is, well, of course, like they fucking know what the bones of a rabbit, they've seen some shit. And then the old woman that's supposed to be watching over them, like their teacher or whatever, she's just like mouthing the words to the bones of the animal song while she kind of nods off to sleep and the kids are staring blankly at it. And that's the thing that that really hit the hardest for me because it's like... <laughs> It's it's not just the bomb goes off and everything's shitty. It's this multi-generational trauma from which you can never recover from. And the people who somehow survived the initial blast and have lived to see additional generations of people, they just have this weird, like, misfiring, nostalgic spark in their brain that's telling them that, oh, well, this is important. We have to have the kids do school stuff when really nothing fucking matters. I and think yeah, the film yeah. the film God. really is the film really escapes. I think because I mean we've seen with the whole COVID nineteen thing, like British people in the media, they they keep they keep going back to the wartime spirit and the Blitz and we made it and et cetera et cetera. And it's the dumbest shit ever because viruses aren't bombs et cetera. But this film predicts that kind of mindset of like you know it's you know national pride and determination and we'll get through it. And it's like no, this film clearly lays out that in the event of a nuclear war there won't be a national identity to salvage like britain is basically medieval after this it's just gone yeah Every, everything is erased yeah nothing exists nothing exists it it really is it's oh boy this is this is some heavy stuff and, and they showed yeah. this in schools yeah apparently. so so this is who would do this I, okay so i i had read about this movie uh, a while back because I remember the the movie it's kind of like the American version of this came out the year before it's called the day after and it it shows like the radiation poisoning and like oh the the bomb goes off and a bunch of people die and it's it's kind of scary harrowing shit but the difference is is because it's an American made movie at the end there's still this like rah rah we can get through this moment and it tries to end on kind of a high note <laughs> where threads does not do that at all it's fucking devastating but uh, one of Susan's really good friends, uh, she grew up in Sheffield, and she told me that this movie basically like scarred her for life. Like she still can remember yeah. scenes from it vividly because they had to watch this when she was like ten years old. They just watched this in school, which is insane. Yeah, it's this... just like, oh well, you know, it's uh, it's a movie that takes place in Sheffield. It's a uh, boarding issues. Okay, what the fuck? <laughs> Don't show this to children. It, it, it reminds me. I mean, my my harrowing school film was uh, the House the that and Bachelor. The it, no, that I was out of school by then. You're right. I'm sorry. That's, and it's not harrowing. You know, that's that's just that's history. Hold it close to my heart. Now, in school, on I think two occasions. I ended up having to watch the uh, Alice and Bachelor animated adaptation of Animal Farm, which, if you haven't seen it, is harrowing because it's animated and it's full of cute animals but then they all start killing each other um and they like the lovely nice horse gets dragged to the, like he turns into a ragged pile of bone and gets dragged to a glue factory and the happy puppies grow up to be slavering hounds and rip a pig to shreds um and the, for some reason they kept showing this in irish schools and irish tv and then later on there's like the cherry on top i found out it's literally cia propaganda <laughs> like literally the CIA funded or part funded this film to make sure that everyone hated commies. 
Um, which honestly didn't work because now I think commies are way better than the CIA and they go fuck themselves. Yeah. But I will say, um, as harrowing as seeing that film as a young child is, I'm so glad I didn't see this because no. it would one of my earliest mo- memories. Um, one of my earliest m- TV memories at all is I guess I must have been like four or so. And I was watching, there was some documentary on TV. And in hindsight, I realized the documentary was about the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And at one point, I wasn't paying attention to it because I was four years old and it's a documentary about World War II. So it's boring as shit to me. But at one point, they clearly had an animated segment. And it must have been from some anime. I, to this day, have no idea which one it is. But I immediately caught my attention because it was like animated. So I'm a kid. I like cartoons. And I watched it. But it was an animated vision of the bombing. So it's a bunch of people hanging around. And then suddenly there's fire everywhere and everyone's skin is falling off. And uh, I saw that and I was just terrified. And I remember like running and hiding behind the sofa. And that's what like literally like maybe my earliest TV memory is that. Oh, and is this it is- uh, Barefoot Jen? Is that the one? I, you know, in I've seen Barefoot Jen since, and I mean, it could be. I don't think I'll ever be able to place it because I don't know. I don't remember the details of it or what it looked it's, like. I just remember what it was. But yeah, Barefoot Jen, it absolutely could have been that, uh, or footage the, from that. The opening to Fist of the North Star also has people getting blown away by nukes. It does. That that one's less likely, I think, to show up in a World War II documentary, though. I reckon Barefoot <laughs> Jen is, is, likely, is a likely contender. I'll never know, but it's one of my earliest mm. memories. And basically seeing this would be this like live action would probably be just even worse. So I am so glad I watched this yeah. as someone in my 30s. And I can be just like, well, that's bleak. Yeah. Rather than being like, okay, I'm scared to go outside now and my mom will have to just try and like spend two days deprogramming me so that I can like live my life again. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad I didn't have to watch Threads in school because I would have been totally fucked for the rest of my life. But yeah, I, yeah the closest thing I ever got was um, my mom let me rent Watership Down. Which that was a mistake. Oh no! I like. I thought it was going to be like Ninja Turtles, but with rabbits, and that was not the case. Um, yes, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering. That fucked me up. I'm wondering, was that another Hallison Bachelor production? I'm not sure. They were like a British animation studio, mm-hmm. uh, you I, know, around that time. So honestly, it it could have been could have been the same people. Just terrifying children. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. There's nothing like just yeah animals animals killing each other. Or just everything you know and love just being destroyed. Mm-hmm. It's just a wonder, yeah, wonderful message to forget. And I mean, you'd think, okay, a, a generation of kids grew up watching this, they'd understand that nuclear war is just an insanity and they would avoid it at all costs. And yet, Britain currently is full of people who are literally like pissed off they can't go down the pub because of a virus. <laughs> so, <laughs> they should just broadcast this changes. on the BBC again. Like, uh, seriously, just uh, all, all six BBC channels or however many there are right now. That's all you get. You're blocked out. You got to watch this. That's because that's what I was thinking, too. I, it, Susan was just like, oh, how was the movie? It sounded terrifying from the bedroom because I didn't want to watch it. I was just like, well, it was. But at the same time, I was just like, I kind of want to force all of the, the people who are saying, you know, reopen the economy and protesting. I just want to sit them down and just make them watch this. But look, you little fucks. Pay attention. <laughs> Just melt their minds. <laughs> It'll never know. work. They could make this movie, like a movie like this, every year and force everyone to watch it. And they'll still be like, man, Iran sucks. We want to have a war with them. Yeah. Like, it, it, 
I don't know. This looks good as hell because before everybody's skin melts off and that woman has a miscarriage, uh, the Shah probably dies, and that's fucking awesome. That would be the takeaway. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking rad, dude. Pretty much. Hell yeah. yeah. Uh, All right, boys. Well, thank you for this, uh, you know, the the highest of highs and the lowest of lows for this podcast. I appreciate it. Um, If you are listening right now, do us a big favor. There is a link in the description of this podcast. I need you to click that link right now. That'll take you to our iTunes page. And I know you got the time because I know you ain't doing shit right now. You're not going anywhere. You're not doing anything. This is all we have. We need your help. Click the link. The link will take you to the iTunes page. Give us a five-star review and then just write a little comment. And the reason why this is important is because discoverability and the evil Apple iTunes algorithm. And guess what? People can't find your shit even if they search for it unless you have written reviews and star ratings of which we could use some more. So do us a solid. Help us out. I mean, who knows? It could be a nuclear holocaust, in which case, maybe none of this matters. But assuming that uh, we make it through the next 13 years without any feudalism, it would really help us. In addition to that, if you have any uh, questions, concerns, comments, death threats, marriage proposals, optimismvaccine at gmail.com, or you can tweet at us at optimismvaccine. And uh, yeah, that's probably the best way to contact us. Gentlemen, thank you for being on the show today. And uh, Jake, last word is yours. I can make her pregnant.